Welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast. My name is Garth Oliver, and I'm your host as we continue our journey through the pages of Scripture, tracking the story that unfolds there. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at the dark side of David's life. Uh, Up to this point, as we've looked at him, David has represented Yahweh well. But in this episode, we're going to see the sin that is connected to his lust for Bathsheba. Now, we've identified David as the latest major character to show up in the story, and we're tracking the story through these major characters. The first of those, of course, was Adam and Eve. And so they were created and commissioned to rule as God's representative and were created in a fully functional relationship with Yahweh with all the blessings that accompanied that status. But in spite of this, the serpent, one of the creatures in the garden, was able to stir up discontentment in them and convince the woman to pursue her own ideas of good and evil independent of God. Uh, This was an explicit rejection both of God's rule uh, and of her role in creation as God had designed it. Uh, Now, as we've emphasized quite a bit, this is where the man should have stepped in and led and through that leadership protected the woman, but he didn't. He relinquished leadership to her and joined her in following the serpent. And so mankind had failed here in this first opportunity to fill the role that he was created for and has, in fact, never lived into what Yahweh created him to be. In this failure, not only did he fail in his own purpose, but he also brought a curse upon the creation. Now, fortunately, Yahweh didn't leave the story there but has been acting to restore mankind to this role ever since. He wants man to enjoy the blessings that go with living in the way God created him, and rather than having to live under the curse. And so he started this restoration in the garden. We see in Genesis 3.15, he promised the woman that one of her seed would ultimately rule and crush the head of the enemy. Uh, In the following verse, it says that the woman will desire this man, this Ish, but he must rule over her. Now, at the time, when you look at that, it was a bit of a puzzling statement, uh, although we explained it back in episode five, but I think it's beginning to make more sense, and we'll, I think, even see some of that play out today um, in today's episode. Now, the next major character after Adam and Eve is going to be Noah, uh, and up through Noah's day, man persisted in this commitment to live independent of God, pursuing a course of his own choosing, defining good and evil for himself, and in this environment, Noah was the rare exception. He was the lone seed of the woman, the one who had chosen to align himself with God in submission to him. And so man's overwhelming rebellion and rejection of the life that God offered uh, brought judgment through the flood. Uh, And in in the midst of this flood, Yahweh preserved Noah and his seed uh, through the death that came with the floodwaters. Coming out of the, the flood, Yahweh established the first covenant in creation, Uh, after the initial commission, uh, and that was the covenant of the rainbow in which he promised never again to destroy the earth uh, in the way that he had done. There was implicit in that, not implicit, even an explicit statement that he recognized that uh, the intent of man's heart was evil from his youth. And so he's going to deal with man. He made the decision to deal with man uh, in spite of that, and there's an implicit expression of mercy there. 
Now, with this new creation, this fresh start after the flood, there is a recommission that involves the the um, renewal of the of the responsibilities to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and to exercise dominion over the animals. And so, although man has never lived up to this created purpose, it remains as God's express purpose for him. And and whether or not man will ever fulfill this purpose remains, I think, the driving question of the story. Now, although the flood provided a fresh start, by the time we get to Babel, a relatively short time later, man is again united in his defiance of God's commission and of his purpose for man. So man is confined to a creation dominated by the curse. Man wants to live independently of God, and so God gives him over to that uh, and to be ruled over by Satan and the demons who have joined him in rebellion against God. And it's against this backdrop that God initiates uh, a promise of blessing in the covenant to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And there are three major points to this covenant, uh, to this promise. One is that Abraham's seed, his descendants, would become a nation. Uh, who would exist in relationship with God. And in this, they're going to uh, demonstrate what it looks like to be restored to the relationship that Yahweh originally created man for. Uh, and so this, these, this nation, this seed, these descendants, uh, as a part of their being a nation, they're going to need a land. And so he's promised them a particular land, the promised land. And then the third thing he's promised them is a particular status, a, a status of blessing, the promise holder, of blessing status, uh, because it's going to be through this seed that God is going to bring the promised blessing that mankind as a whole is universally ignored throughout the story. God is going to bring blessing in spite of man's disregard through the nation of Israel and uh, through Abraham's seed at this point. We don't know yet that it's the nation of Israel, but that's who it's going to turn out to be. And so as the story unfolds, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, um, his seed, in that sense, has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and because of a famine, they go down to Egypt where they're enslaved, uh, spend over 400 years there and grow into a people at least 2 million strong. And so it's at this point that Yahweh raises the next major character, Moses, up. And Moses brings them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai where Yahweh enters into the Mosaic Covenant with them, establishing the relationship that he had originally promised Abraham that he would establish with his seed. And so he's fulfilling the promise to Abraham. And so as a result of this Abrahamic, I'm sorry, the Mosaic Covenant, Yahweh is now dwelling amongst his people in the tabernacle in a relationship mediated by the priest and governed by the terms uh, laid out in the Mosaic Covenant, which is expressed first in Exodus and then uh, more fully in, in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, before the nation of Israel actually enters the promised land, uh, Joshua replaces Moses as the leader, and he's the one who's going to lead him into the land. Uh, and so they go in and they're able to um, take some possession to establish a foothold, but they repeatedly fail to live up to their covenant responsibilities in their relationship with Yahweh. Uh, and so they don't take full possession of the land, which is exactly what the covenant had said. They will only take God, will, Yahweh will only give them possession of the land if they will live faithfully to their covenant responsibilities. Um, and instead of that, what's happening is every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. We find this at the end of the book of Judges. And so they're still living under the deception of the serpent that started 
in the garden. Um, and so there at the end where it talks about man doing what's right in his own eyes at the end of the book of Judges, the solution is presented. They're going to need a king. Now, um, as we've seen in the episodes leading up to this, Israel uh, had decided for themselves that they wanted a king, but the king that they want is like all the other nations have, uh, a king like uh, the, the, the surrounding nations, not the kind of king that Hannah and Eve longed for, the king that Yahweh had promised and that he knew that they needed. And so this king that they wanted, a king like the other nations, is the king that they got in Saul. And of course, God did not allow him to retain the throne and ultimately killed him. And he's then replaced by David, the next major character who we are now talking about. And in the last two episodes, we've seen David assume the role for which he was anointed. Uh, Yahweh has established him as king of all Israel. And in that role, we've seen him do the thing that Israel needed done. Instead of every man doing what's right in his own eyes, David has turned the heart of Israel toward Yahweh as he's restored the Ark of the Covenant to a place of prominence in the life of Israel. So because of this, Yahweh has granted David the promises laid out in the Davidic Covenant. Uh, This is what we looked at last week. It's the covenant that guarantees that the Messiah will be the seed of David and will rule over an eternal kingdom. Uh, and so in today's episode now, the story is going to take a darker turn as we look at David's uh, sin as it relates to his lust for Bathsheba. All right, so as we move into the story today, it, it's helpful to review what we've seen in the book of 2 Samuel, because 2 Samuel isn't laying things out chronologically. It's developing David um, as uh, in his role as king of Israel. Uh, and so there's there's really five sections of 2 Samuel. Uh, and in the first, which runs from uh, the beginning of 2 Samuel through chapter 3, verse 5, David is established as king of Judah. And so there's a summary statement at the end of each of the first four sections that kind of helps us uh, identify these sections and, and, and see the structure of the book. Um, and so here at uh, the end of uh, the first section, uh, there in, ver- in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually, right? And so that's kind of a summary of where the story's going. David's ascending, Saul is weakening. And then it lists the sons that were born to David there at Hebron when he was king over Judah. And then the next section begins where David begins to ascend to kingship over all of Israel. Uh, and that runs from 3.6 through 5.16. And in 5.11, we have another similar summary statement. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, uh, sorry, messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons. They built a house for David. And David realized that Yahweh had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And that's going to be an important statement. I want you to keep that in mind as we think about this. David was not king for his own benefit. Yahweh established him and exalted him over the kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. God gives authority to those that he gives authority to for the benefit of those who are to be cared for, ruled over, 
and, and the point of that ruling over is to care for them. Um, and so after that summary statement now, here again, at the end, this, there's a list uh, of the, the sons that are born to David while he's in uh, Jerusalem. And, and then the next section um, is uh, David presented as the priest king uh, related to his activities uh, in connection with the ark. So there's the reversal of the lost ark under uh, Eli. The, the ark was lost to the Philistines. And under David here in this section, David uh, reverses that by capturing the gods of, uh, of, of the Philistines. The Philistines had captured the ark. Um, they didn't hang on to it for long, but uh, there was a, a implicit in that is that Yahweh has departed Israel, and now David is reversing that, capturing the gods of the Philistines. And then there's two attempts to move the ark, and the second attempt is successful. And then after that, we have the Davidic covenant, which is what we talked about last week. Um, and then that section ends in the next chapter when the li- with a list of uh, enemies that David subdues. This is in 2 Samuel 8. And so he subdues the Philistines. He subdues the Moabites. Uh, there's a particular king listed, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. Uh, he's going to be uh, part of the Arameans. And then the Arameans as a group are listed. And then Edom uh, are also all. These are all the surrounding nations um, and, and so this presents David in relationship with Yahweh, subduing all the nations around him. And so the summary statement here, um, and then the list is going to be different. So I'm going to read it to you in verse 15 of uh, chapter 8. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Remember, the purpose of his exaltation as king was for the benefit of the people of, of, of Israel. And so David is administering justice, justice and righteousness for all his people. And so then there's here's the list. It's not a list of sons like it has been before, but Joab, the son of Zariah, uh, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, son of uh, Elihud, uh, was a recorder, Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and uh, Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers, right? And so in the first two sections, we've got the list of David's sons uh, that are given uh, to show how God has blessed him. And now what we see, David reigning, administering justice and righteousness, and his kingdom is ordered with administrators who are responsible for the various aspects of his kingdom. So there's an order to his kingdom. It's an established kingdom, uh, both in the sense that he has defeated his enemies and he's got people who are responsible for the different areas uh, of the kingdom. And so that brings us to the end of the third section uh, of the book of 2 Samuel. In the first section, he's established as king over Judah. In the second section, he's established as king over all Israel. And the third section, he's presented as this one who turns Israel's hearts back towards Yahweh as they should be. Um, and, and so then, that uh, obviously, that starts uh, after that, I guess, it starts the next section uh, of the book of Second Samuel. And it begins with David looking for a descendant of Jonathan. If you remember back in episode 39, uh, Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, and David make a covenant. 
the context, just to refresh your memory, is Jonathan uh, has gone to sound out Saul. Saul has been expressing hostilities toward David. And so Jonathan is going to sound out Saul and warn David uh, of any danger that he learns about. And uh, so they, they make a covenant. Um, and so these, these are Jonathan's words. Uh, and may Yahweh be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, will you not show the loving kindness of Yahweh that I may not die? In other words, Jonathan's asking David to make a commitment uh, not to kill him. Normally in this time when the throne passed from one family line to another, uh, the new king would kill anybody who might have a claim from the, from the other line uh, just to, to, to keep things stable within the, the, the nation. And so Jonathan is, is uh, making a covenant here with David, asking David to commit not to do that. And uh, so that's what he's talking about there. And so he continues, you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when Yahweh cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so he's asking this not only for himself, but for his descendants. And so verse 16 says, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may Yahweh require it at the hands of David's enemies. And so Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as his own son. And that's in 1 Samuel 20, 15 through 17. And so David in this covenant had committed to uh, Jonathan to extend loving kindness to his descendants for as long as um, David's line continued, right? And so it's in light of that that David says here in 2 Samuel now, where we are in the story, is there any yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? And so he's looking to fulfill this covenant. And they find Ziba, one of Saul's servants, and he's summoned and tells David that there is one named Mephibosheth, uh, and he's crippled in both feet. And so David summons him. Uh, which, of course, terrifies him. He's uh, one of the, the the former line, one of the, in, in a sense, the enemy, right, uh, who's now being summoned before the king. But David puts him at peace, telling him that he only wants to show kindness to him. And so David restores all of Saul's land to him uh, and gives him a permanent place to eat at David's table. And so he's going to not only give him wealth, uh, uh, the, the land which will produce income for him, but uh, Mephibosheth is also going to be a part of those who eat at the king's table. Um, and, and so both Mephibosheth and Ziba are going to show up later in the episode. Uh, well, uh, later in the story, not in today's episode. Uh, they'll be in, in the next episode. So keep them in mind. But they're presented here as the beginning of this section. Uh, and then as you move into 2 Samuel chapter 10, uh, we get into the Ammonite Wars. Now, the thing that triggers this war is that the king of the Ammonites dies, um, and his son, his named Hunan, uh, becomes king in his place. So David wants to show kindness to Hunan because Hunan's father, Nahash, had shown some kindness to David. Um, and so th- just as uh, David had shown uh, kindness to Mephibosheth for the sake of Jonathan, now he's showing kindness to Hunan um, because of his father Nahash. Uh, but this doesn't turn out like uh, the Mephibosheth and story did at that point uh, because David sends representatives to console Hunan because his father had died. 
But Hunan, on the counsel of his advisors, the princes of the Ammonites, uh, accuses David of deception uh, and, and treat the entourage that David sends as though they are spies that David has sent uh, in preparation for invading the Ammonites. Of course, that's not at all what happens, but uh, that's what they accuse them of. That's what they believe. And so they end up humiliating the uh, entourage and uh, cut off half their beards and cut off their garments so that their buttocks are exposed. Uh, and, and so uh, this does not go over well. Uh, David tells them to stay in Jericho until their beards have grown out. They get different clothes. Um, but this it prompts David to go to war against the Ammonites. Now, this must have happened fairly early in David's reign, uh, but both because these are some of the enemies that he's going to subdue that are listed back in chapter 8. Again, things aren't happening, aren't presented in a chronological order here. There's a summary of the enemies that he subdues uh, to show that his kingdom is established and ordered, but now we're going to go back and we're going to look at some of the details. And uh, so at this point, uh, when this happens, David uh, has not subdued the enemies and hasn't established himself as the dominant king in the region like he's going to. Uh, And so, uh, again, the result of this humiliation was the Ammonite Wars. Now, once the Ammonites realize that they've messed up and that they have made themselves, the, the text says, odious, uh, to David, they hire the Arameans to be their allies as they get ready for war with David. And these Aramean armies, uh, there, were, there were several armies involved, and they are all vassals to Hadadezer, king of Zobah, who is one of the Arameans. And uh, at least in part of the battles, they're led by the commander of his army, Shobach. Um, so in this stage of the Ammonite wars, the Arameans are defeated. Um, and make peace with David and are afraid to offer any more help to the, to the Ammonites. And uh, this Hadadezer is uh, one of the, the, the conquests that is listed uh, back in chapter 8. One of the, the countries, one of the kings that is subdued is Hadadezer. And so again, uh, th- these events are not chronological. Uh, they're telling the story in a certain way to help us understand critical developments as the story unfolds. So back in chapter 8, David's conquests are listed, showing him uh, established as the exalted king of Israel his sub- who has subdued all the surrounding nations. And so now the narrative goes back to one of those earlier events, the subjugation of the Arameans and Hadadezer, uh, to give us some more detail about that part of the story in order to understand other important developments in the larger story. So that's what's going on. So we're in the Ammonite Wars. Uh, The allies that have been hired to help them, the Arameans, have been subdued, and they've withdrawn. They're not willing to engage Israel anymore. Um, And so that brings us into 2 Samuel chapter 11, where the Ammonite Wars are are, uh, the setting for the story of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And so uh, chapter 11, verse 1, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now, as we listen carefully to the way this is phrased, uh, at the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. So David should have gone to battle. Uh, David should have been leading his army in battle, but he stayed home. And so that's the first uh, beginning of the story. 
Uh, and as it continues, one evening he got out of bed, went on his roof, uh, and saw Bathsheba, a very beautiful woman who lived in the vicinity, bathing. Uh, and the result of that is that he summons her and has sex with her. And that's a pretty quick uh, progression in the, the details of the story. Um, uh, of course, this resulted in conception, and I say resulted because probably most of you, everybody listening is familiar with the story. And uh, so resulted in conception, and she sent word to David uh, that she's pregnant. And so David's response is to summon her husband, Uriah, who was one of a Hittite, so he's not an Israelite. Uh, he was from one of the nations that they were uh, driving out, but he's one who's allied, uh, allied himself and aligned himself with David and with Yahweh. Um, and so David summons this husband, Uriah, back from war on the pretense of, of wanting a report. But really, he wanted Uriah and Bathsheba together so that everyone would assume the child was his. Now, the problem with this plan was that Uriah felt such a loyalty to his brothers in arms that he refused to allow himself any indulgence that they wouldn't also be able to enjoy. So he refused to go to his own home. He's not going to sleep with his wife if they can't sleep with their wives. And of course, again, you know the story. Um, when that doesn't work, David sends him back to war and instructs Joab to put him in the most intense fighting uh, and then withdraw so that he gets killed, which is what Joab does. And so we pick up the, 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 the narration in verse 26. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son, right? And so with the, the story is developed. She has now been brought into David's house as his wife after Uriah dies, and she has given birth to the son that's the product of that marriage. Um, and, and, well, the product of the marriage is not really accurate. The product of the sexual relationship, the marriage followed. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And so that's in 2 Samuel eleven twenty six and 27. And so if you think about the details of what we already know here, uh, we can see that it's been over nine months since David had summoned Bathsheba. Um, and, and so this has gone on for extended time, and now the son's been born. Uh, and so it's perhaps David thinks that this is all in his past and he's dealt with it. But then, then Nathan, the prophet, shows up um, and, and tells David a story. Uh, this is in 12, 2 Samuel 12. We're moving into a new chapter here. And so then Yahweh sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. And he, it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so when Nathan tells this to David, David's response is predictably indignant. Uh, verse 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. 
he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion, right? And so David's judgment is that the man deserves to die, but he's going to make restitution fourfold uh, because he didn't have compassion, right? Um, And so that sets us up for the message from Yahweh and Nathan's response. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of the uh, hand of Saul. So I have placed you in this place. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. Literally, that says into your bosoms, into your arms. So he gave Saul's wives to him. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these, right? And so Yahweh has withheld very nothing really from David. He has blessed him beyond imagination. He has raised him up, and he has given him more wives uh, than he could have ever imagined. And yet David here is gone and taken uh, the one wife that belonged to Uriah. Uh, and, and so there is this... One of the things that I think as we look at this story is to recognize that there's more going on here than simply uh, a sexual sin, right? Uh, There is this uh, failure of David to appreciate and and to be content with all that God has blessed him with. And so he says in verse 9, why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, at the heart of this indictment, let's notice what Yahweh says here. At the heart of this indictment is that David has despised the word of Yahweh. And he's done that by doing what's evil in his sight. And there's three elements to what he's done. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. And you've killed him. The sword that you used was the sword of of the sons of Ammon, right? And so as a result, the consequence is this. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. You're going to have troubles from within. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. All right, so notice the things that Yahweh says are going to happen, the consequences of David's actions. The first, the sword will never depart from your house. Uh, There's going to be people die because you have used the sword of the sons of Ammon. The sword's never going to depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, the the problem is not only that the, the sword is going to be a part of your house, but he continues, I'm going to raise up evil against you from your own household. Um, and I'm going to take your wives and give them to your companion. You, what you've done in secret, I'm going to do in broad daylight, so you will experience uh, the shame that goes with all of this. Uh, and so David's response, verse 13, to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. 
Now, if you remember, this stands in sharp contrast to Saul, who I did what God told me to do. I, there, there was I've 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 served God. Uh, David doesn't. David is humble, uh, and he confesses his sin. And Nathan said to David, "Yahweh has also taken away your sin. You shall not die." Right? A significant point here. And so the sin is taken away, and, and David is not guilty or is not going to be held. Uh, to the requirements of the law. Under the law, he should have died for these things, both for the murder um, and for the adultery. But Yahweh is going to extend mercy to David here, and you shall not die. However, there's going to be consequences. Verse 14, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And so God is not going to allow the, the, the seed from this union, uh, uh, this particular union, the adulterous uh, union uh, of David and Bathsheba, uh, to continue to exist and to be bring repute upon uh, Yahweh's name. And so again, uh, the, the, the sin is taken away, but there are going to be consequences nonetheless. And we shouldn't re, re, uh, confuse guilt and, and consequences, right? There are consequences for the action, but the guilt is taken away. The guilt, uh, David should have died because of. Yahweh is not going to do that. He's going to allow him to continue to live, uh, but there will be consequences. And so with that, Nathan returns to his house. Um, and Yahweh struck the child with some kind of sickness. Remember, he's already born. Uh, and so David, knowing the merciful nature of Yahweh, immerses himself in prayer and fasting for the child. But Yahweh doesn't relent, and after a week, the child dies. And David ends up accepting this uh, and ends his prayer and fasting. And this brings us to another uh, element of the story that I want to read, because I think we often overlook it. Uh, and fail to recognize the contribution that it makes. And so verse 24 of 2 Samuel 12 says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. And so Solomon is going to be the product of the marriage of the legitimate son uh, now of uh, David and Bathsheba. Uh, although the, the roots of the relationship were illegitimate, she is now David's wife. Um, and so she David names him Solomon. Solomon is from the Hebrew word meaning peace. Um, and so David sees himself as, I think what this is doing is saying that David sees himself as at peace with Yahweh. Uh, but, the, but the next thing is just as important. Now Yahweh loved him, speaking of this child, Solomon, and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Yahweh's sake, for Yahweh's sake. And so Jedidiah means beloved of Yahweh, right? And so this child that is uh, given to Bathsheba as David comes in to comfort her has a particular status uh, before Yahweh. So a couple of things to point out here. One, when it says that he's beloved of Yahweh, love in the Old Testament doesn't mean warm fuzzies. Uh, Yahweh didn't have warm fuzzies about Solomon. Uh, love involves the choice. And so it's saying that Yahweh has chosen uh, Solomon, uh, named him Jedidiah. And in fact, Solomon is going to be the one um, through the, he's going to be the seed through whom the Davidic covenant that we looked at in the last episode 
is fulfilled in the next generation. It's going to be through him that the promised seed continues. Uh, And so there is no indication here that Yahweh in any way holds Bathsheba responsible. She is comforted. He blesses her with another child. Uh, We'll come back to this in in the making sense portion momentarily, but this is worth noting. These two verses are worth noting. Um, that uh, this son born to David and Bathsheba has a special status with Yahweh. He's beloved of Yahweh, and that's what Jedidiah, his other name, means. Right? And so um, this is followed by uh, the victory over the Ammonites. It's not until after Solomon's birth that Joab is on the verge of subduing the Ammonites. And he has to hold up and send word to David to come down and capture the city lest Joab do that and then end up naming the city after himself. And so Joab's done all the fighting, but he's paused to give David an opportunity to be the conqueror. Uh, The implications is similar to what it was at the beginning of the chapter, and that is that David, as king, should have been with his troops fighting, and he's not. He's back here um, in in Jerusalem, and so he's not living into his responsibilities of as king. And so, but Joab pauses to let him come down there and claim the the credit for all of the work, all the fighting that Joab and these other men um, have been doing. And so that's the extent of the story that we want to look at today. Uh, I'd originally intended to make this a longer episode, but I, I really, as I thought about it, feel like that we need to focus on the things that are presented. Um, in this chapter. And so we're going to move into the making sense of life. Uh, This is going to be a little shorter episode than what we've been doing, uh, but I I don't want to mute the points that I think are being made here, and I want to give them due weight. And so with that, we're going to move into the making sense of life. And I want to just start out by reminding us that authority of God's anointed uh, has been a major emphasis throughout the book of Samuel. David is repeatedly unwilling to lift up his hand against Yahweh's anointed. And when somebody else does, he promptly kills them for the presumption involved. And so this authority is an an important piece. And uh, so with that, the first thing we want to do in in terms of making sense and reorienting our thinking is to think about uh, how this presents David's authority. At the beginning of the Ammonite Wars, the, the narrative indicates that David was not where he should be. He should have been with his army. Uh, when the troops went off to war, David should have led them. And through that leadership, cared for his men and protected the nation of Israel. And so there's a responsibility to the men who are fighting with him to lead them in a way that gives them the greatest chance for victory and exposes them to the uh, in a least amount of unnecessary danger. And, and it's through that fighting that he's protecting Israel uh, from the threats like the Ammonites uh, presented here. Um, so, but instead of David leading like he should have, he stayed home um, where uh, if he'd have been out, he would have been using his authority to care for the nation entrusted to him. Remember, we said back in one of the summary statements that he was exalted as king over Israel for the benefit of the people, right? And so he's supposed to be using his authority to care for the nation entrusted to him. Instead, he used it to indulge his own lust, summoning the beautiful wife of one of those men that he should have been leading so that he could have sex with her, right? So he should have been out there with Uriah, leading him and fighting alongside him, right? 
And instead, he, uh, of living into the responsibilities that came with his authority to care for the nation, he's using that authority to indulge his own lust. And he uses that to summon uh, Bathsheba, who was a beautiful woman, and the wife of Uriah, one of, he's going to turn out to be one of David's mighty men, right? And so he's got an unbelievable devotion to David, and David betrays him uh, in uh, what he does here. But he doesn't stop with just summoning Bathsheba to have sex with her. Uh, Then he uses that same authority to summon Uriah uh, to Jerusalem in an attempt to hide the effects of his sin. When that doesn't work, he again abuses his authority and through that abandons this man. He gives orders to Joab uh, to abandon this man who was devoted to David, uh, effectively having him murdered, right? And so David is doing all of this. He's able to do all this because of the authority that he has as king. And rather than using it to protect, he's using it to indulge himself and he's abusing his authority and he's failing those people that he was supposed to be protecting and caring for. Now, at the end of the Ammonite Wars, David is still at home and David uh, Joab has to give David the opportunity to come take credit for capturing Rabbah, uh, which is the city they were besieging, although Joab is the one who's been doing all the fighting. And so this story is not just about David's adultery, although it certainly involved adultery, but it involved much more. The adultery occurred in the context of a larger failure. David's failure to properly exercise his authority as king and to fulfill the responsibilities of that role, the responsibility to rule and subdue those who presented a threat to the people of Israel, the Ammonites, uh, the responsibility to care for those men who devoted their lives to fighting for him, men like Uriah, and to care for Uriah's wife because uh, of his relationship with Uriah, uh, uh, Uriah and also because Bathsheba is one of his subjects. And so he's supposed to use his authority to protect her. And instead, he abused his authority to indulge his own lust and selfish desires and then try to cover up his sin. And so there's much more here than I think uh, I usually see acknowledged and have thought of myself uh, in, in, I thought of myself in relation to this story. It really is about David failing in his role as king, not just failing sexually, right? And, and so then that brings us to the second point that I want to make, and that is that it's in this light that we need to consider, consider Bathsheba. Um, I don't think we should think of the incident between David and Bathsheba as a love affair. I can find nothing in this account that assigns any responsibility to Bathsheba. She's comforted, in fact, and receives special status, right? So David was the king who summoned her and had sex with her, right? In this, in this world, you didn't tell the king no. Um, and I think that's the way God intended. The, the, the authority here is functioning. Uh, that's, that's one of the themes that we see through the book of Samuel is that David has an understanding of authority that few others have. Um, and so he, David was the one who summoned her, and as a result of that summoning, had sex with her. He alone is the one who's confronted by Nathan, and it is he alone who confesses. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but this is about David. Yeah, but I, I, when Bathsheba is brought in, there's no guilt uh, assigned to her. Uh, although the son born of this event will die, 
none of the other consequences announced by David are directed at her, right? They're all directed at at David. Instead, when she is comforted by David, she again conceives and gives birth to a son who has a special status before Yahweh. He's the beloved of Yahweh. And as it turns out, this son will be the one through whom Yahweh's covenant with David will move forward. And as such, this son will be the embodiment of the promised seed in his generation, just as Isaac and Jacob and David's have been. And so Bathsheba's actions, like Sarah's, were an expression of her submission to Yahweh's authority. And this submission placed her in the role of the mother through whom the promised seed would continue. In this role, she takes her place alongside Eve and Sarah and Ruth. And as such, she stands in contrast to Michael, David's first wife, who despised him when he brought the ark into Jerusalem. Micah was childless all her days. Bathsheba has two children, and the second of whom uh, is the uh, 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 embodiment of the promised seed. And so Bathsheba, um, I I think we need to see her in a proper light here um, and and recognize that uh, what she's doing is an expression of submission to the authority of of, Bathsheba. God's anointed, and as such, the responsibility falls on David completely. And and the reason that I think this is important and the reason that I felt like we needed to give attention to this is because in the larger story, remember we said we've got the larger story of the humans involved, but then this occurs in the context of an even larger story um, in the battle in which Satan has attacked Yahweh, and that battle is really about the path to significance. Satan's contention is that significance comes through um, pride and self-exaltation, or we might also say independence and self-determination. And Yahweh is saying, no, true significance comes through humility, submission, and dependence. And so Bathsheba is an expression of that, and we see her gain particular significance in the story because she has submitted to things that are, in our minds, unconscionable, right? Um, and so that's the second point. The third point is this. Uh, we've, we've got David's role, we've got Bathsheba's role, but there's also a focus here on God's mercy. Uh, although there were consequences, David should have died for his sins, But Yahweh had mercy on him and not only allowed him to live, but to continue as king and to even go on to receive the promises laid out in the Davidic covenant that we talked about in the last episode. Remember, this isn't chronological. And so when you put the pieces together, I don't think God has extended the Davidic covenant to David yet. That's going to come in the future. And so these events, in spite of the consequences, uh, did not preclude David from receiving the Davidic covenant. And it's this covenant that guarantees that the Messiah will be one of his seed, one of David's seed, the seed of David, the son of David, who will rule over an eternal kingdom. And of course, this is going to be Jesus Christ. Um, And so hopefully these things are helping you understand uh, how the bigger story is working, what are the important things, uh, and how to reorient our thinking to be a part of that and make sense of our own lives. And as always, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share this with you. Hope it's making sense. 
Hope you're able to, to put the pieces and things are dropping uh, in place for you and uh, look forward to continuing the journey with you. And in the meantime, just pray God's blessing on you um, as you think about and process and pray through the things that we're talking about here. So until next time, uh, may God's blessings be upon you. <music>